In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, tonight we're talking about confirmation. And I've been actually a little anxious about getting to this one. Um, actually made some more, uh, I guess, insights into the sacrament of confirmation I have than in many of the other sacraments. So been anxious to kind of get to the good stuff here that I found out. Um, a lot of cool things. And we kind of lump confirmation in with you know, baptism in the Eucharist. And it kind of gets shortchanged in that, you know, we tend to think of the three sacraments of initiation, what makes you a Catholic, and, you know, baptism and the Eucharist seem like they get all the the good stuff and confirmation, you know, oh, we have that too, you know, that kind of thing. But there's really a lot to it, and uh, uh, I'm kind of excited about tonight. So let me just go through initially some of the uh, basic stuff that we've talked about before. The minister for the sacrament, who can convey the sacrament of confirmation? It's the bishop, but the bishop can delegate that authority um, because of you know the require- requirements of geography and you know like for instance our diocese here. It's all of South Carolina, which is ridiculously large in terms of the geography. But it's would be really difficult for the bishop to get around and um, to do that especially on the Easter Vigil when people fully come into the church. He can't be at every parish at every Easter Vigil. It's just impossible. So that authority has to be delegated to the priest to be able to account for that. Now the recipient, you have to be a baptized Christian who is yet to be confirmed, right? This is one of those sacraments that has a character to it we talked about before. Uh, it imprints the soul with a special seal you know, remember we talked about the seal of a ring on wax. You know, God imprints something in us when we're confirmed. It changes us. You know, the philosophical term is ontological. It's an ontological change. It changes us at our very being. We're reconfigured to Christ with this sacrament. So it can only be received once. So a baptized Christian who has not yet been confirmed can receive the sacrament. And kind of an aside, but you know about the conditional type things, because the church is real big on record keeping, and you know, if somebody can't prove that they've been confirmed before, uh, just like with baptism, they can potentially do a you know, conditional confirmation. If you have not been confirmed, then I confirm you, you know, be sealed with the Holy Spirit, that type of thing. All right, and that brings us to the elements of the sacrament. Remember we talked about matter and form, the stuff that's used with the sacraments, Remember the sacraments, again, to go back to the very first um, class, the sacraments are a continuation of the incarnation, right? They are very much involved with the stuff of this world, the material world, right? So the, the matter is that stuff that's used, okay? The, the material world ingredients that God uses in the form is the, the words that are invoked over the sacrament. So... The elements for the sacrament of confirmation, the matter is chrism oil, okay, which is basically just olive oil with a 
perfumed substance that's added to it. It's traditionally balsam that's added to it. So it's olive oil and balsam. You know, gives it a, a sweet smell to it. Uh, that's the stuff. And, you know, the, the bishop will anoint the person. We're going to go into anointing because that's really important to understand the sacrament. But he'll anoint the person. And the form is the, the words, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But he'll also lay his hands on the person. And we'll see that uh, when we take a look at the Acts of the Apostles, that the actual sacrament taking place. Now the words, just a word about nomenclature here. The word confirmation you aren't going to find in Scripture, but there's a lot of terms that aren't in Scripture that the church has come up with to describe things that it needs to describe that weren't originally there. Trinity. You don't see the word Trinity anywhere in the Scriptures. But the idea is there. It's a word the church has come up with to express something that already exists in the Scriptures and in tradition. Right? So... Uh, virgin birth. You won't see that anywhere in the scriptures, but something, you know, all Christians understand. Yeah. All right. So we've got matter, form, minister, recipient. Now the effects. What is, what are the effects of confirmation? Well, confirmation is very much linked with baptism. Okay. And so uh, this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Essentially the effects of the sacrament of confirmation, are, the way they describe it, is to bring an increase and deepening of baptismal graces. Right? Think sanctifying grace, the divine life that's given in us. All right? An increase and a deepening. Okay? But we have to understand what that means. And it talks about five different aspects to that. Uh, five different parts of increasing and deepening the baptismal grace. Number one, it roots us more deeply as sons and daughters of God. Remember, we talked about the covenant, you know, last time, and how when we were baptized, we enter into the covenant, just like the Jews, when they entered into the covenant in ancient Israel, it was through uh, circumcision, right? With confirmation, or with baptism, that's what brings us into the covenant. We become sons and daughters of God. God adopts us into his inner family. Remember the Trinity, that it's the... God in his deepest nature is not a solitude. He's a family, right? And we are incorporated into that through baptism. And that family bond is strengthened and deepened through confirmation. And by extension, it unites us more firmly with Christ. You know, not just in his divinity, but also in his humanity, right? The whole Christ. And it increases the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this is what I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about tonight. You know, when we receive baptism, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in a special way, confirmation increases that gift of the Holy Spirit, right? We receive the whole Trinity, you know, the the indwelling of the Trinity when we're baptized. But in a special way, we receive something extra from the Holy Spirit, okay? Think Pentecost, you know, the, the tongues of flame representing the Holy Spirit coming down upon the early Christians on Pentecost. Okay. So the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, and it increases our bond with the church. You know, because it increases our bond with Christ, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ is the church. So by extension, it increases our unity with the church, right? So it's not just, you know, unity with God, it's also the horizontal unity of one another with the church. 
And the last one, which is really important, one we often associate with confirmation, is it's uh, we receive a strengthened ability to spread the faith, to be witnesses for Christ. Okay, so those are the uh, the basic effects. Um, and we often talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned that, the seven gifts, um, wisdom, understanding, counsel, courage, knowledge, piety, uh, and fear of the Lord. We don't have nearly enough time to go into all of those, uh, but the Catechism does do a good job of talking about them if you want to learn more about those or the, the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. You know, dig into the Catechism. It'd be a, it's a good resource to, to learn more about you know, how those affect us and deepen our spiritual life. All right, so we mentioned that the sign of confirmation was oil, right? And we have this, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the scriptures, there is this relationship, the symbolic relationship, you know, that we see between certain substances and the Holy Spirit. When you think of the Holy Spirit and some kind of physical object, you know, the first thing you probably think of is anybody? The dove, there you go, the dove. But there's several different things. The cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud, the, the cloud that led uh, Egypt or the ancient Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness was this pillar of cloud during the day and at nighttime it became a pillar of fire, right? And fire's another one that is often associated with the Holy Spirit. Think of Pentecost, the tongues of fire coming down. So there's certain things that we see associated with this sacrament that are very much tied uh, to the Holy Spirit, these physical manifestations. But the primary is oil. Oil is a very deep symbolic meaning for the Holy Spirit. And it has its roots in the Old Testament in three offices that we see, three different positions that no one person held in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, and kings. All three of those were anointed with oil, okay? And this is critical to understand the nature of Jesus and the nature of the church and us as Christians, right? And when someone is anointed, right, they have oil sometimes poured or, or uh, spread on them, you know, in confirmation, it's usually with the thumb, um, but that an oil, that anointing, you know, in the Greek, the word for someone who is anointed is where we get the word for Christ. Christ really, literally, when you look at the, the Greek word Christos, you know, in Hebrew, it's Messiah. And in Greek, it literally means the anointed one. Okay, so priests, prophets and kings in the Old Testament were anointed. So let's just take a quick look. You don't have to turn to these. I'm just going to run through them real quick. Three different pra- passages that talk about priests, prophets, and kings. In Exodus chapter 40, we see Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother, his older brother, um, who God gave with him because Moses complained that he couldn't speak real well. He's like, I can't tell all this stuff to Israel. They won't believe me. They won't, you know, I'm, I'm slow of speech, you know. So he got his older brother to come in, and Aaron eventually becomes the high priest. So this is from Exodus chapter 40, verses 12 through 15. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of meeting and, wa- and shall wash them with water and put upon Aaron the holy garments. 
and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Right? So the anointing is tied in with the priesthood. That's how they become priests, right? So Aaron is the high priest and his sons are priests under him. All right, then in 1 Samuel, you know the story of David. You know, he had all these older brothers and the prophet Samuel was looking for God to find the king. He goes through all the older brothers. David's not there. He's out because he's a shepherd. He's out with his sheep and they finally call him in. And so this is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their enemies round about. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Right? So this oil is a sign of his kingship that God has bestowed upon him through Samuel. Now, Samuel was a prophet, right? You can't give what you don't have. So Samuel himself is part of the prophets, and we have an example of that with Elijah. Elijah uh, was the greatest of the prophets, but he had a protege, Elisha, who followed after him. And so this is from 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel. They have anointings of kings, right? And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abelmeo you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Okay, so priests, prophets, and kings are all anointed. Now those correspond to Jesus' own ministry, his own offices, right? Because like I said before, you have individuals anointed priests, prophets, and kings. And there's a couple times you have an overlap, like Melchizedek back in the book of Genesis. He's a priest king, okay? But that's very rare. I mean, you don't find anyone who is priest, prophet, and king, okay? So Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the life, and the truth, right? Those three things correspond to those three offices. The life corresponds to priesthood, where the priest sanctifies the people. The truth corresponds to the prophetic office, because the prophet proclaims the truth. And then the way is, corresponds to the kingship, because the king rules, and he guides the people along the way. Okay? So priest, prophet, and king sanctify, proclaim the truth, and rule. Okay? Now, we as Christians... I note the term, Christians, right? What do we say Christ comes from? It's the Greek for anointed one, right? So we as Christians are anointed ones, right? We are anointed in the same way as Christ does. So we share in those prophetic and priestly and uh, kingly offices through baptism, right? But in a particular way also through confirmation. So these three offices, it became synonymous 
with the expectation for the one person in the Old Testament who would unite all three of these offices. And uh, there's a passage which Jesus will eventually quote from Isaiah chapter 61, which talks about this, the one, the Messiah, remember, the anointed one. Uh, Chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. This is the Messiah talking, right? Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah who's going to deliver the people. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, that's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is priest, prophet, and king. And again, we share in all of those uh, prophetic offices to a lesser degree through our baptism and also through confirmation. Now, again, we talked about chrism, the holy oil, and um, the, the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about for years is on the day of resurrection in the upper room, okay, Jesus comes and meets with his apostles. You remember that from John chapter 20. Uh, this is the episode where, you know, Thomas, doubting Thomas, he's not there, right? And so later on the next week, Jesus comes again and, and he doesn't believe any of this. He's like, you know, not until I put the, my fingers in his hands and the holes of his hands in his side, I'm not going to believe until then, right? So this is the episode where he is not there, you know, where he meets with all of them. Um, and that episode, we see this curious thing where Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you the full effects here. This is John chapter 20. Uh, verse 19 on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side then the Lord then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord Jesus said to them again peace be with you as the father has sent me even so I say send you Right. Now, one little thing. Many times in the Bible, you'll see, it really strikes us odd, you know, as modern people who write kind of simplistically, but you'll see things repeated, right? He'll, you'll see something and then something else will happen and you'll see the exact same words almost just a few lines later. That's a, an ancient literary device to draw your attention to what's in the middle. They often talk about it as a sandwich, right? Because you've got the two pieces of bread, but the meat's in the middle. Okay, this is one of those occasions, right? Because Jesus says, peace be with you, but he says it twice. Well, what happens in the middle, right? That's the important part here. He says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, right? The signs of the crucifixion. So whatever's happening here, it's deeply tied in with his suffering and death and resurrection, okay? Because he shows them the wounds of his sacrifice, right? So John is highlighting that. 
you know, whatever you're reading, keep the crucifixion in mind because that has everything to do with this. That's what John is telling us. So again, in verse 21, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So he's sending them out. All right, remember, end of Matthew's gospel that we talked about before. You know, he sends them to baptize, to make disciples of all nations. All right, so he's sending them out. And then, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay, what's happening here? We have God breathing on man. Right? The only other time that God breathes on man is all the way back in Genesis with Adam, where God breathes life into Adam. Right? Uh, the word there, ruah, it, it means wind or spirit, the spirit of life, right? But he's breathing into them the Holy Spirit. John emphasizes that. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says, as he breathes on them. You know, he's ritually enacting this. Okay. The thing that's always troubled me, though, this is the resurrection. What happens after this? Well, 40 days later, we have the ascension. You know, and then nine days after that, you know, we've got Pentecost. What happens on Pentecost? They receive the Holy Spirit. Why has it happened twice? Right? This has always kind of made me scratch my head. What's the deal? Why twice? You know, isn't once enough? <laughs> So it's something that's really bugged me. You know, I, I just, you know, I've never heard a really good explanation about it until I started researching this and discovered a couple of things. Okay, uh, it, it's been really something that's fascinated me. All right, so on Pentecost again in Acts chapter two, uh, tongues of fire come upon everybody. Right, and let me just touch on that so you get a few of the details here. Uh, this is. Acts chapter 2, the first four verses here. It actually goes through verse 13, and then Peter gives this big long sermon afterwards where all these people are converted, right? But let me just read the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind. Remember, wind, he breathed on them, right? And they received the Holy Spirit. A sound like a rushing wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them, gave them utterance. Now, one thing that's always talked about this, this is like the Tower of Babel episode in reverse. Remember back in Genesis, you know, the whole family of uh, nations were united and they were trying to build this tower and uh, trying to usurp God's authority, really. You know, they were afraid of another flight, flood, so they were building this tower up to the heavens. You know? um, but God confuses them, and they all speak different languages, so they can't try to you know, save themselves, if you will. You know, he doesn't want them unified under those circumstances. All right? 
So he confuses their language. This is Babel in reverse, right? So they all speak in a way that everybody understands them, right? But the speaking is important. And this gets to uh, what I was looking at. What did we talk about last week with baptism? What was the initial thing that happened in the New Testament, you know, with Jesus? He was baptized, right, by John the Baptist, okay? Let's take a look at that because that was the first thing that got me um, kind of wondering about this. This is back in Luke, and if you'll turn to this one, it's kind of important here. So turn to Luke chapter uh, 3, verses 21 to 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke. All right. Chapter 3, verse 21. So John the Baptist is baptizing, and it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Right? So what we see here is Jesus entering into his ministry, entering, entering into his office as priest, prophet, and king. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. This is his anointing. Right? The voice from heaven is God the Father. He is the one who anoints. Jesus receives the anointing. He is the anointed one. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form as a dove. The Holy Spirit is the anointing, right? That's what's happening here. And it sanctifies the waters of baptism from here on out. Remember, we talked about this. Jesus reverses the flow of things that we normally see. You know, in the Old Testament, if a person touched somebody who was a leper, they would be ritually impure and they would have to go sacrifice and see the priest and you know, make atonement to become ritually pure so they could go back to the temple and worship. You know, the same if they touched a dead body you know, and a, a bunch of other things that could make someone ritually impure. Well, in the New Testament, we see Jesus. He touches a leper and the leper is cleansed. Right? He touches a dead body they're raised to new life. Okay, so the flow of things is reversed. So when he is baptized, the waters of baptism now become sanctified and they can now forgive sins, right? But this place, this event, it's called a theophany where you know, we have the Trinity being uh, manifested in a particular way. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all represented here, right? Well, there's another part in the New Testament that just really sounds close to this. It just has echoes of what's going on here. You think of what that is? I know some of you probably were thinking of it, you know, where the voice comes and an image of the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus. Right? Who said it? Transfiguration, right? So I got thinking about these two events, you know, because God speaks in both events. What's the difference? You know, what's going on? Why these two events? Now, with the transfiguration, you know, you often hear about this, and I know I've heard 
Father Newman talk about this as well. And it's perfectly true. I'm not discounting that. But what we have for the, the three, the inner three apostles, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' closest ones, he brings them up there with him. You know, and what he has is just a lifting of the veil you know, to see Jesus in his glory. So that when all the events of his passion come, you know, they're prepared for it. They have some warning and they're, they're strengthened. But there's more to it than that, I think. Okay? Because God speaks. Right? But what does he say in that episode? Let's flip over. It's also in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 28. And let's see if we can figure out what the difference is. So this is chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, the number eight stands out, right? You know, because people are circumcised on the eighth day, right? What's the significance of number eight? Well, it's seven plus one, right? Seven we think of creation. Well, the next day would be like the beginning of a new creation. That's why the resurrection isn't talked about as you know, the first day of the week, it's the eighth day, right? It's the new creation that God is starting. You know, Adam was the first creation. Jesus rises on the eighth day. So, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, right? Significance of Moses and Elijah. They are the two quintessential characters from the Old Testament that embodied the law with Moses, because he's the lawgiver, he gives the Ten Commandments, and Elijah, the prophets, right? He's the greatest of the prophets. And so you can divide up the Old Testament, um, you know, shorthandedly by talking about the law and the prophets, right? So... This is the embodiment of the Old Covenant that Jesus, the embodiment of the New Covenant, is discussing. Continuity, right? Continuity between the Old and the New. Behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. Only Luke tells us that. You know, he's talking to Moses about Jesus' exodus. It's a new exodus, right? Something new that's related to the Old talking about his exodus, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Again, prefiguring his passion. That's what he's going to do at Jerusalem, the passion. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but kept awake, and they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we were here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. It's a little... Uh, comedy there. I mean, Peter was beside himself. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> so let's make a memorial, you know. Verse 34. As he said this, a cloud came down and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved, this is my beloved son, my chosen. Listen to him. And the vo- when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silence and told no one of these, of those days anything of what they had seen. Okay, now look at what God said. 
Here he says, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. What did he say at the baptism? Flipping back. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What is the difference between those two statements? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus in himself, right? God is pleased with him in himself. It has to do with his very being. Okay? And then back to the transfiguration. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the first is about his very being. And the transfiguration is about his message to listen to him. And that's the thing that kind of clicked in my mind about baptism and confirmation. Confirmation or baptism is about our being. We become sons and daughters of God, right? It changes who we are. We become beloved sons and daughter whom God is well pleased, right? That's baptism. But when we're confirmed, we are given power and authority to proclaim the message, the gospel, right? So that people will listen to us. So I think that's the relationship that we see here. And then tying that in with the two bestowing of the Holy Spirit, right? What happens in the upper room on the day of resurrection? Okay, he breathes on them. Okay, flash back to Adam, where Adam receives life. Okay, he receives human life. He receives, he becomes a human being, right? And they are given power to bring people back to life by giving them the ability to forgive sins. Okay, all related to this idea of baptism and new life. And what happens on Pentecost? They receive the Holy Spirit again, but it's not about them, it's about the message. They go out and they preach, and they were hiding in this room for weeks now, afraid and terrified. And all of a sudden, with the bestowing of the Holy Spirit, they've been set on fire, right? And they go out. Peter stands up in the middle of the community with the Pharisees all around who just, you know, a few weeks before, had brutally murdered his master. And he stands up in the midst of them when he had been cowering in this room and proclaims the gospel for everybody who wants to hear to hear. And people are converted. That's confirmation. Right? We are given that. So that's, that's what I see as going on here with the difference between the two bestowing of bestowings of the Holy Spirit, right? One corresponds to baptism, which corresponds to Jesus' baptism. The other corresponds to the transfiguration, where God says, listen to him. So, Jesus is the anointed one, right? And he gives us these abilities. And he himself was anointed uh, one last, one other passage I want to mention before I want to talk about how this all plays out in the, the New Testament is when Jesus himself, after the baptism, he goes to his hometown. This is back in Luke still uh, in chapter 4. 
starting in verse 16, right? Right after he's baptized by John, he heads home. He goes to Nazareth. And the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue. And uh, let me just read it. Chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And in the middle between all of that is the temptation by the devil in the desert, right? To try to trip him up as he begins his ministry. But he goes home to start his ministry. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue as was his custom on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Right? That's the same passage we just read from Isaiah 61 about the coming of the Messiah. Then afterwards, verse 20, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing now that's like a bomb going off okay you have to understand you have to put yourself in first century sandals of a Jew you know to really appreciate this the long anticipated Messiah, the one who is going to right all wrongs and deliver the nation of Israel, right? They've been waiting for him for centuries. And here comes this guy that they grew up with, that they know from a little kid who's a stinking carpenter in their own town. And he has the nerve to get up there and say, your wait's over. I'm here. This is me. I mean, we, we are too familiar with this text. You know, we don't appreciate the, the magnitude of fury and rage that they would have felt, you know, because they're too close to him. And they don't realize who this really is. Okay? So he is the Messiah, and he starts off you know, he never uses the words, I am the Messiah, but he says, this passage has been fulfilled, you know. The writing's on the wall, which is another allusion to the Bible, by the way, from the book of Daniel. Um, so let's see how all this plays out after Pentecost. And, you know, like I said, the word confirmation, you don't see in the scriptures, and I've, you know, early on when I didn't really know the, the Bible very well, actually, I, you know, didn't know it at all except for what I heard in church. I remember, you know, uh, a guy who was trying to draw me into the Protestant church, you know, and we had lunch one time and, you know, I considered him a friend. He's like, where do you see the word confirmation in the Bible? Where is that? It's not there, you know, trying to convince me of, you know, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's all you got to do, right? The tr traditional line. Well, I didn't know. You know, I, I didn't have an answer for him. I knew there was an answer. There had to be an answer, but I didn't know it, right? But it's there. 
if you know where to look. I know where to look. So let's look. All right, the book of Acts, chapter 8. It's a real interesting episode. And again, the word isn't used. But remember, there's a difference between baptism and confirmation. So, chapter 8, verse 14 in the book of Acts. All right, and we got Peter and John here. Starting in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Right? Right away, this strikes the reader, you know, Samaria. Samaria was like the ancient enemies of the Israelites, okay? I shouldn't say Israelites, I should say Jews, because uh, back in the uh, 8th century BC, Assyria came and conquered the 10 northern tribes. There's 12 tribes, you know, 12 tribes of Israel. Back 722, Assyria comes, carries off the 10 northern tribes, never to be seen again. There's a few remnants left, and they interbreed with the local pagans, and they become the Samaritans. So the Jews don't see them as pure. They see them as half-breed traitors, okay, who haven't kept covenant with God, right? So Samaria, you know, it just leaves a bad taste in any faithful Jew's mouth, right? So here we got, uh, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. All right, so the church is embracing even Samaria. So they send Peter and John, verse 15, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, for the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you get that? There's a distinction between baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit, which he means confirmation the laying on of hands. There's a couple other places. Let's just go to uh, one in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, which highlights this fact. So flip over a few pages. And this is all Paul's episode here. He uh, is the center of uh, attention here towards the, the second half of Acts. And let me just back up to verse one. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have never even heard that there, was, there is a Holy Spirit. Right? There's some gaps in the teaching that people have been receiving. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John Baptist baptized with the baptism of repentance. This deals with the difference between Jesus' baptism and John's baptism, right? So John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so get that. They're baptized at this point. The real baptism. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. 
Okay, so quite clearly, he distinguishes between baptism with water and then laying on of the hands and they receive the Holy Spirit. Two distinct actions. Okay, so confirmation is there in the scriptures. The word just isn't there, right? But the concept is there. Okay, now I actually finished early a little bit this time. <laughs> So if you've had a backlog of questions or you want to know something more about this, this is a good time to, to chime in and, you know, ask away. Yeah. So you right. received the Holy Spirit in baptism. Yeah, well, you received the whole, whole, trinity, the whole trinity, right? Yes, and you receive and then, faith, hope, and charity. Yeah. You know, you receive the gifts. Everything you receive in baptism, you receive in seed form, right? And this is something I haven't talked about. There's kind of an analogy to the physical world in reference to the spiritual world, okay? So all the things that we see that normal people experience in the, the physical world, they also receive in the spiritual world. You know, baptism. We are born again, right? And we receive spiritual food in the Eucharist. Well, confirmation corresponds to growing up and maturing, okay? Uh, when people get sick, they receive medicine, and so we have the medicine of confession and the anointing of the sick and, you know, the, the spreading of um, the population, you know, through marriage, which corresponds to both, and then also to uh, the spreading of the faith with holy orders. So, that answer your question? Anybody else? Yes, sir. Chain of command. Chain of command? Is Chain that what you command. Okay. If it says here that the apostles sent John and Peter, or Peter and John. Ah, oh, you're back in uh, chapter 8? Yeah. yeah. If Peter's a pope, why would the apostles be sending them anyway? <coughs> well, remember. There's two aspects to the church, right? Um, you see this. Let's flip back to Matthew's gospel. It's a great question. Um, let me get the right one. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, we see where Jesus gives Peter his authority to begin with. And this... If you're not familiar with this passage, you need to be, okay? This is where Jesus um, asks people, who do, who do people say that I am? Uh, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one that stands up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, okay? And so Jesus then gives him authority. He gives him the authority based on the keys. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the language. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, keep that phrase in mind and flip over to chapter 18. Uh, starting in verse 15. This he's addressing not just to Peter, but all of the apostles collectively. Okay. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with him that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, right? The church is the final authority. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning they're excommunicated, right? They don't listen to the church, they're a heretic, and so they're excommunicated. Verse 18, truly I say to you, he's talking to all the apostles now, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the bishops together as a body have a similar authority that the Pope has, right? That's what ecumenical councils are all about. It's all the bishops coming together in union with Peter, right? So when the church sends Peter and John out, you know, all of them together, including Peter, decide these are the guys that are going out, right? That's what you're seeing in Acts. It's the church acting with a unified voice to pick those two to help. I'm just saying Well, um, Peter's, you know, he leads from the front, you know. So, I mean, he, he's not above getting his hands dirty and going out and, you know, we're just used to the Pope staying in the Vatican, you know. Uh, well, think of John Paul II. I mean, he got out. He went to all sorts of different places. He was the most traveled Pope in all of history, you know. So, I mean, it's along those lines. You know, it's not so much that he, you know, had to obey because they commanded him and he had no choice and he really didn't want to go you know I'm sure he volunteered so it, it's not a usurping of his authority anybody else come on somebody's got to have something else yes sir so uh, oh. Oh, go ahead. you mentioned kind of the council right uh, I believe there's 26 councils. Yeah. Oh, well, that one's not co- counted among the ecumenical councils. There was just the Council of Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 15. Uh, and that's a really interesting uh, passage where it basically accounts for the Gentiles coming into the church and the, the aftermath. What do they have to be responsible for? You know, because the big question was, do they have to be Jews first in order to become Christians? And they said no. You know, they they came up with a, coo- a couple of cultural things that they had to abide by, um, but none of the restrictions that you see, the cultural restrictions of the old covenant. You know, all the the different, you know, circumcision and the killing of animals and the ritual washings and all of that, that all gets swept aside. And there's really interesting reasons why none of that has to uh, be followed as Christians, but. It would take us way too long to, to get into that here. Yeah, John. Um, so, it's, it's kind of speaking from my experience, I converted four years ago. Right. Right, I had the confirmation of First Communion the same night, right? Right, Grand Slam. And, and uh, so, one of the things I kind of had a question about is, you know, you talk about the, uh, the sign, right, after conf- conf- uh, they were, Peter was confirmed, he got up and started preaching, he gets his boldness to proclaim the gospel and stuff like that. Right. So what happens, like, 
my experience, like I didn't necessarily have that, like, you know, laying with my hands. It's not like I got up and started preaching boldly, right? So, right. Like, what do you make of that? Well, there were certain necessary things that had to take place in the early gospel, right? I mean, the, the apostles were given extraordinary graces by necessity, you know. Uh, the church needed that to, you know, it's like a jump start for the church to get things rolling. Um, if we had, in our own day and age, we had people working miracles left and right, you know, would it really be faith the way that Jesus talked about faith, you know? Uh, real faith is believing without seeing, you know? Um, not without evidence, don't get me wrong, it's not blind faith. Um, but faith that has to be tested a little bit, you know? Uh, and we have to grow and mature. And we do, you know, you do see all the different effects that we see at Pentecost distributed throughout the world, you know, here and there, they pop up from time to time. God's way of saying, yeah, it's, it still happens. There are still miracles that take place all over the world. You know, it's just not as in your face as it was back then. Um, and it may be in the same quantity that it was back then. It's just that there's so many of us, we don't see it as rapidly because there's, you know, a billion Catholics now, you know. Um, I mean, I can't give you a definitive answer because I don't know the mind of God. <laughs> He's got his own reasons. But that's my understanding of the, the reasoning behind it, you know. It's kind of interesting because uh, you, know, you described it as like a maturation right. thing or whatever. But uh, it kind of, you know, I kind of felt like I was given, I was a two-year-old given a driver's license, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm being told I'm mature, however, I'm not mature yet. So it's kind of, it's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, why are we still here? You know, why do we still go through this? Why don't we just die right away after we're baptized, you know? Because we're being tested, you know? There compare ourselves to the angels. Angels are pure spirit. They have no emotions the way we do in terms of bodily emotions. You know, they're pure intellect and pure will, right? So they grasp everything that they need for salvation in an instant, and they either say yes or no. And it's definitive for them because there's no watering down of their decision. We are composite beings. We have intellect and will, but we've got a body, you know, suffering with concupiscence. And so there's always part of us that muddies the water, you know. There's always part of us that, you know, just makes any decision we make, you know, a little shaky. And that's the very thing that allows us to be redeemed, you know. Because Adam, back when he made the decision to sin, because he didn't have full grasp of all the different possibilities like the angels do, that wiggle room there allowed for humanity to be redeemed, you know? So it's the good and the bad at the same time. Well, now it's up to us to go and, yeah. and discover more. Right, we're given all these things in seed form, but it's up to us to make something of it. Find out more and what are we going to do with what we got? Right, yeah. It's, it's up to us to cooperate with God's grace. He's given us everything we need, you know. And if we, you know, take our hands off the wheel, so to speak, and let him do the driving, we'll get home, 
you know. But the more we grab it and try to, you know, influence things and, and make it about what I want, you know, that's when disaster tends to come. And I'm speaking from my own life, and I know that intimately. <laughs> and the more you learn, the more you can teach. And when you're right. confronted with questions or, or criticisms from non-Catholics, and that, yeah, that actually brings up a, uh, something, also another lesson I've learned in life. The more you realize how you have to struggle to, to grow in the faith, the more empathy you have for other people, you know, and appreciate the struggles that others are going through. Um, and, and this is something, there's a real tendency that when you're riding the high and everything's going great for you spiritually, to kind of, you know, pride can sneak in real easy and you can start looking down your nose at other people, you know. Everybody's on their own time schedule. You also have you to know. prepare yourself for those bad times that you test your faith Right. And ultimately, we have to compare ourselves to Christ, you know. And that's why somebody who's amazing as St. Francis can say, I'm the worst of sinners. He wasn't comparing himself to everybody else. He's comparing himself to Jesus. Compared to Jesus, he was the worst of sinners, right? It's a high standard, but, you know, if you aim high and you don't quite make it, you'll still rise pretty far. All right. We good? Let's end in a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, you have filled the hungry with good things of heaven. Keep in mind your infinite compassion. Look upon our poverty and let us share the riches of your life and love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all.